Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. I'm excited to talk with my guest today. She's a partner in one of the big four audit firms and has spent over 24 years advising global asset managers. She recently won the Senior Leader of the Year Professional Service Award and is passionate about her sports. But before we get into that, here's a message from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Dow. Dow combines one of the broadest technology sets in the industry with asset integration, focus innovation, and leading business positions to achieve profitable growth. The company's ambition is to become the most innovative, customer-centric, inclusive, and sustainable material science company in the world and operates in 30 countries, employing approximately 37,000 people. Dow champions a fully inclusive workforce and a diverse supply portfolio reflecting the world in which we do business, because it's the right thing and the smart thing to do. Dow Supplier Diversity Initiative focuses on identifying and building relationships with enterprises owned by women, minorities, veterans, LGBTQ, and people with disabilities, as well as certified small businesses. Heads Talk Podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Teresa Owisua J is a tax partner in PwC's financial services, asset and wealth management team. She sits on the PwC UK advisory board and chairs its partner affairs committee. There are many facets to Teresa, which in the course of this discussion, we will find out. It was interesting while doing my research that I found more personal information than business about Teresa. And that leads to the assumption rightly or wrongly, her decisions, approaches, actions, and activities are dictated and driven by her personal experiences as she uses the various hats that she wears to navigate her life and the business environment that she works in. So for Teresa, it's very much personal as well as business. We will elaborate on this. So without further ado, Teresa, welcome to Heads Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Elaine. Hi. Hi. Okay, um, let's get right into it. I want to talk around business first and then perhaps launch into some of the personal aspects I've hinted at. You, like me, must be exhausted talking about COVID-19, but unfortunately we are still in this space, so we have to continue to talk about um, this pandemic. Um, We can start by you walking us through the sequence of events from when it hit the European shores to you and your organisation's responses and the new way of working and the new arrangements, in particular the impact it has had on both your business and personal life, and finally, where are you now with this? Sure. Okay. So um, the one of the benefits of being part of PwC um, is that although I'm a partner in PwC UK, we are in uh, lots of countries around the world. So our uh, China and and Asian, uh, you know, PwC offices were hit first by this. Mm-hmm. And the good thing was that we were able to learn, and we were able to see and to learn from what was going on over there so we were sort of tracking the progress mm-hmm. basically as it, as it made its way from you know from China mm-hmm. through Europe and mm-hmm. then to the UK mm-hmm. um, and and as, as our businesses or our sort of counterparts started being hit by it um, our senior leadership were very much in uh, in dialogue with them uh, for example, we had uh, one of my friends is on secondment to our Tokyo office. 
So we were able to get um, input from people like that, people in Singapore, to kind of know what was happening, what was hitting them, what were the decisions that had been good decisions, what are the things that hadn't worked quite so well. Therefore, as the impact almost kind of got closer and closer and closer to the UK, then we were, as a firm, able to take decisions based on what we knew from what had happened in other countries. That's quite, you were almost full-armed, so to speak. Yeah, and of course, you know, as we've seen over the last few months, it's hit different countries in in different ways and the responses of the government have been Mm -hmm. slightly different. So we were, on the one hand, looking at uh, the way in which the, the UK government was responding. We were looking at, we were learning from our other PwC you know, counterparts in the other part, and then forming our own response um, mm-hmm. to to what that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the great things is that we've had a policy that we call everyday flexibility mm-hmm. um, for about three or four years, um, which means that you are not ordinarily rooted to your office if you don't need to be. Um, so, for example, I've personally worked from home if I can do for the best part of 20 years on a Friday. Um, So I think as more and more people um, in our business, I guess kind of got increasingly, we're kind of looking at the news, more people started working flexibly, started working, you know, from home. And we were absolutely fine with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was that mix of people taking their own personal decisions, us as a business beginning to prepare for, uh, for what we would do. Um, and then the investments that we had made in technology meant that when it finally got to the time where we said to all of our 22,000 people in the UK, yeah. um, okay, work from home, actually, we had already kind of gradually started making that move more from a personal, but we were able to make that move well. No, that, that's, no, that's useful. And of, of course, it, it does help having the intelligence from the, the Chinese office as well as the Japanese yeah. office. So, okay, let's move on. Um, Shall we look at um, your particular area of work, which is tax? Something I don't yeah. agree, but it's, you know, it's an area of work. Um, <laughs> bro- yes. Broadly, what are you doing to help your, your clients cope with tax and financial challenges they're facing during this period? Are there any sort of international tax issues you'd, you'd like to elaborate on, for example, um, domicile issues, operational issues, and reporting requirements as a result? of new working arrangements, you know, if you could sort of elaborate on that, please. Yeah, sure. So um, I would put the the sort of the, the whole sort of COVID pandemic period in almost sort of three phases. So the first one being the initial crisis itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one being this period of sort of stabilization of the business mm. and then the third one which we're not quite in which is what it what will the new normal look like mm-hmm. so and and the, the way in which the challenges that our businesses our clients have had in each of those periods two periods so far and what they will have going forward or different and so we've tried to anticipate but also work with our clients in each of those so if you think about the initial crisis, um, as, uh, as, you know, borders were shutting down, um, as lockdowns were, were happening, the, the asset management industry that I specialise in um, is a very global industry. Um, and therefore, a lot of my clients had their employees all over the world. 
and quite a lot of those employees, both in asset managers and in banks and insurance companies, became what we call displaced. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might have been that somebody went home for a wedding or something, they got stuck there, or actually they wanted to be near their elderly parents there rather than in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and those in itself have ordinarily have tax consequences. So very quickly, we were having to deal with, you know, those almost the, the sort of the mix between doing what organizations doing what was right for their people, which was being empathetic, mm-hmm. but making sure that we managed the tax consequences of that, which is what it meant for the corporate and what it meant for the individual. So there was that, that sort of international aspect of, you know, tax challenges that immediately arose. And then as we went into lockdowns um, and, you know, wider businesses started being impacted, from a financial services perspective, one thing that's been quite consistent is that the, the memory of the global financial crisis from 08 to 10 is still very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And so things like the, um, you know, the job retention scheme, there were very few financial services institutions that wanted to take advantage either of that or of the, of the other uh, government incentives. Mm-hmm. And so that's been quite a strong and consistent feature in, in what we've seen. So if you look at just the bit that I specialise in, there's been very little of, of using furloughing. But if, if you look at the broader, you know, we, we have 27,000 clients. So if you look at the broader clients that PwC services, um, a, lot of, a lot of companies have obviously used and, and taken advantage of the furloughing scheme and other incentives. So there's been a lot of work in helping people with that. Yes, I, I, I can imagine. Um, I, I want to stay with um, tax and financial challenges, um, but this is sort of an additional side question. And bearing in mind, we, we know that PwC is a, a multinational corporation, but um, sticking with the UK arm of it, what does all of this mean for Brexit? Um, I've asked this question before um, to a previous guest, but I'd, I'd love to have a great um, a tax perspective on this. What happens with a hard Brexit? Um, how will a potential hard Brexit impact the economy? So I think that there would be very few companies now that aren't preparing for, given what the government has said, that aren't preparing for um, a hard Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen the, the recent uh, you know, GDP figures, we are obviously now in the midst of a deep uh, recession. Wow. The, what, what we are going to see from a lot of uh, companies across the UK is obviously a very, very challenging um, 12 to 18 month period. Uh, and so from a tax perspective, in terms of how they deal with tax, it's, it's all about, you know, what are the losses? What are the, um, you know, what are the, the people taxes? What are the incentives that they can get, you know, that they can sort of take advantage of? Um, on the other side of it, you've obviously got, you know, what happens come January with potentially a hard Brexit. Mm-hmm. And you then have, oh, in one sense, nothing is going to change for, for most companies until you get to things like the customs. That's obviously going to be very, very challenging. 
Um, and, and the VAT rules would obviously be very, very challenging. The bigger and broader question is, given what's happened with COVID, what does the government then do in terms of the recovery, that sort of third phase, the new normal? Mm-hmm. What does it then do with its tax policy with a, with a hard Brexit to overlay? So we're beginning to think about what that might look like. What's quite clear coming out of the government is that um, they are not keen on having another 10 years worth of austerity. So we, we're then kind of looking at, well, will, they, will there be tax rises or will there be other forms of taxes that they may look at, such as the digital services tax, um, and make more use of that? So we think that there might actually what what the what the pandemic causes possibly causes the government to do is to take a great big step back and say, well, how how do we actually ever get through the recovery phase, and do we do something new, or do we kind of pull the old levers that we've been pulling? And so that's what I think will will impact um, on every business in the UK. All right. And I'd like to with the government, as you talked about them quite extensively in your answer, the government has put in place a number of um, financial initiatives to support struggling businesses during this COVID-19 yeah. period. Can you elaborate to my audience how PwC is helping its clients with accessing these government-backed initiatives, as well as explain to us what the COVID Corporate Financing Facility, the CCFF, is all about? How do organisations apply for this? How have you have been helping them? So um, it's worth, there are two types of uh, support that the, uh, that the government has put in place. So there are the tax ones um, and then there are liquidity um, ones as well. Mm-hmm. So just starting with the tax ones, at a headline level, there are things like, you know, business rates, VAT deferrals and being able to pay your uh, taxes uh, in instalments or defer them in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of those you don't actually have to do anything to apply for them. So the conversations that we've been having with clients there um, is to make sure that people know uh, what they look like um, and you know, and to just make sure that they are taking it into account in terms of their you know how they sort of deal with this overall period. Um, so the the job retention scheme I touched on earlier, but but it's worth picking up that uh, what what we've seen people do is to work out you know how they you know how they use if they are going to use the job retention scheme then how they use it. Mm-hmm. So we've helped our clients in terms of looking at what are the you know who might they furlough, what's the cost to make sure that they do the applications right. Um, it looks really simple. It's, as usual, more complicated. Um, you know, what are the impact of benefits that they have? So we've been, we've been doing a lot of work in terms of making sure that um, our clients do the right thing if they are going to go for the job retention scheme in terms of making the right applications and the right decisions for them. From, from a medium-term perspective rather than just a very quick decision. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of this, so that's the tax side of things. Um, and as a, tax, as a tax partner, I felt I ought to begin with these um, already. Um, on the other side of it um, are, the various, are, the, are the various business loans that are available. 
Um, and the government's put in place a number of, of different uh, support mechanisms. And the, the CCCF is one that uh, companies can apply for. There, there are different types, which depends on the size of the business um, that they are. Um, and therefore, it allows them to apply for different types of um, support from the government. So again, what we've been looking at when we've looked at things like the CCF, which is based at larger kind of corporates, mm-hmm. um, you know, with really strong credit rate, uh, credit rating, but they're kind of experiencing liquidity pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, what we've been doing is helping them decide whether or not they want to make the application, helping them through looking at their liquidity position um, and then looking at uh, making the application as well. It's worth mentioning the other uh, loan schemes that are out there, um, which is the, the business interruption loan scheme, there's a future fund, there's a bounce back loan scheme. And again, they are for increasingly smaller businesses that would apply for the CCF. And so what we've been doing there is again, talking to you know, the real backbone of, of the UK economy, those sort of smaller to medium enterprises mm-hmm. and helping them work through whether or not um, they they want to apply for those you know for those loans. It's worth saying that um, uh, as the, there's always the devil is in the detail. So, for example, um, there are conditions when you apply for these loans um, that don't necessarily grab the headlines. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's that they've come to the forefront more recently, which limit your ability to pay dividends. And, uh, you know, your ability to pay bonuses. And so for those small and medium enterprises where actually they may take personally take money out through dividends, that's obviously an impact in terms of whether or not they apply for these loan schemes. So a lot of the conversations that we've been having with clients is to help them work through the, the challenges of that and to work out what's the right thing for them. Right. I'd be interested in those. The government and revenue authorities, are they, are they collaborating on the global level? So, yeah, it's really interesting, Elaine. Over the last few years, we have seen more and more and more collaboration between, uh, the, between the government's mm-hmm. authorities around the world, which has resulted in a whole raft of, of new legislation that, that impacts a lot of businesses in the UK. Mm-hmm. I think with this, with coronavirus, that because of the speed with which governments had to act and the fiscal stimuli that each of them were putting in place, that um, first of all, what we've seen, for example, in the UK is that a lot of the government measures are, you know, aren't necessarily legislated. So you kind of have the, you know, you're sort of left in the position of trying to work out what's going on through the, the various announcements that they make. And so that kind of presents some practicalities. And each government is trying to do the right thing for their, um, for their own economy. So I guess slightly in contrast to what we've seen over the last few years, it's been less of a coordinated response. And that really kind of comes back to what I said at the very beginning, that the thing with this pandemic is that it's hit different countries in different ways. So governments have responded in slightly different ways. That doesn't mean that there's no coordination um, or interaction it's just that maybe for some of the things they've each kind of gone gone alone and so it's a bit of a patchwork in terms of the way in which governments have ever interacted and kind of worked together on this. Mm. But what, 
what does a post-COVID-19 business environment look like for taxpayers and revenue authorities eh? as we return to audits, data gathering and tax collection? So I think that's really interesting. Um, I think we'll see a return to uh, the, the collaboration that we've seen between government authorities um, on a lot of, an, uh, of initiatives. It's not like it stopped, but we'll see more focus on that. But most governments are going to have the challenge that, that I talked about earlier. How do they get through recovery and, and back to normal? Um, and so there is going to be uh, possibly governments looking at what's the right thing for their economy um, in, in terms of that recovery. And I mentioned earlier that the most obvious one that we sort of see is uh, the digital services taxes. Um, and perhaps rather than seeing a coordinated, uh, you know, global digital services taxes that we see increasingly um, the countries doing their own thing and so that will probably add a much bigger layer of complexity for businesses that operate in the, you know on a global basis okay um there's two things we, we cannot not talk about in in, in these episodes and um, one is covid19 which we've touched upon and you've also yeah. talked about and the other is digitalization so you also talked about the digital tax services so let's look at the tax impact arising from digitalization and as companies uh, increase the digitalization in their business models to deal with current conditions what are the tax implications you've mentioned some um, earlier and as such to elaborate on more on this now and in the future it'll be interesting to know how this is impacted on an international level as well. Sure. So the, the, the thing about tax is that the tax rules that we have today have been around for hundreds of years as, as they've evolved. Mm -hmm. And they were written for the world as was, mm -hmm. you know, before, you know, the advent of technology. So in the old days, it was that if somebody manufactured something that you were, you know, taxing where the activity was taking place, and that was broadly where the people were as well. What we've seen increasingly over the last 10 years is that where the consumer of the product is um, might be a different place to where the product was designed. Um, or where the product is manufactured. And so what we've seen over the last few years is that, you know, if you go back 20, 30 years, all of those activities were, were all in the same place. And therefore, you could have a patchwork of taxes that internationally kind of worked. What um, governments have got increasingly focused on is that as those three things, the consumer, the, you know, the intellectual property and the manufacturer, increasingly are in different places they've then got very focused on the fact that in the old world they may be taxing the least valuable bit and i sort of put that in quotation marks the least valuable bit of their sort of their value chain mm -hmm. and the big thing about the digitization is the fact that the way that taxes work at the moment governments don't feel that they're taxing where the consumer is Mm -hmm. um, or that they're taxing the person who had the ideas. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the way that um, taxes work, you have this concept of transfer pricing, 
So you take your value chain and you break it down between those three things. Um, you know, the ideas, the ideas, the, the, the manufacturing and the, um, and the consumer. And if your tax rules only, only work to tax, you know, the, the manufacturing bit of it, most governments feel that there is some leakage. So what this pandemic does is that with the, as, as we've all really embraced technology, whether personally or in the corporate world over the last three months, it does mean that you don't have to travel to do business, um, you know, as we've seen over the last few months. And it does mean that, that you'll get an increasing uh, disconnect between where your customers or your consumers might be and where some of the thinking and the, you know, where some of the creativity and the manufacturing um, activities are. And that's the issue around the sort of the, well, that is the issue of digitization, but it's also the issue about the taxes that, that follow it. And so you can see an argument brewing between the different countries because everybody wants to tax the high value bit um, of the value chain. Hmm. All right. <laughs> I, I can see that's going to be quite a lot of work going forward. Looking at it's and it's one where, whilst it's you know, if I look at tax these days, that when I first started doing it, you said at the very beginning I've been doing this for twenty four years. Hmm. It was all around the rules and the technicalities and that kind of thing. Whereas now, as a as a tax advisor, um you're so much more a business advisor. It really is about understanding the, the, the business concept of, of what's happening. And I would also say it's the other way around in relation to tax that, you know, CEOs and boards didn't necessarily, if I go back 20 years, necessarily focus on, on tax or the impact of tax that was left to you know the tax folks you know in the tax department whereas now yeah whereas now the kind of stuff that i'm talking about well if you're talking about taxing your value chain and and more governments being able to to, to sort of lay a claim to your revenue that hits your bottom line so it takes tax from being something that you know is a technical thing to something that then becomes uh, a business critical thing Hmm. I think this is going to be my last question dominated by tax so I think my audience will be happy with that it's it's, how are governments likely to balance the need to stimulate the recovery versus the need to pay off deficits that's not a small job so I'd really be interested in this it's it's not is it because um, if you look at us in the UK we've only just come out of austerity after the after the global financial crisis, um, it's clear the UK government doesn't want to have another decade um, of austerity. So, I, I, my, what I anticipate is that the government will continue to run at you know at high borrowings in a way in which it hasn't done over the last ten years, mm-hmm. um, and therefore because the government is very cognizant that bringing in high taxes, whether they're personal VAT or corporate taxes, doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you know it stops you from basically stimulating the, the economy. Mm-hmm. So, so that's the real balance of, of making sure that, 
that they don't raise taxes too high. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is, well, do they look at other ways um, of taxing and new taxes? Um, do they look at foreign companies that are operating in the UK where they don't feel that, you know, that they have the ability to tax because of the value chain? So some of the technology companies. Um, and so I think that, that that's likely to be more of their focus than it is on increasing taxes because of the disproportionate impact on stimulating the economy. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So interesting times ahead. And I put the interest <laughs> definitely. Um, I, I want to change direction. Uh, I want to talk about leadership now, especially uh, during this crisis. Um, we've all seen the articles and news clips and the commentary uh, about Jacinda Hardin, um, her leadership style or approach, and a lot of um, positives about the way she is combating the, the virus in the country, New Zealand. Oh, and let me add that my previous guests made a point of saying that language is like combating, fighting, battling is not necessarily the right language to use to describe situations. Yeah. A caring tone and language uh, should be used to describe situations. Um, that way, we, she, she also intimated that we move away from, some would argue, aggressive tones to dealing with situations and crisis. Anyway, back to Jacinda Ardern. Um, she's also been criticised for her leadership style. She states one of the criticisms she faced over the years is that she's not aggressive enough or assertive enough, or maybe somehow because she's empathetic, she's weak. She adds she's totally rebels against that. She refused to believe that you cannot be both compassionate and strong. So my question to you is, what as a leader have you learned during COVID-19? What would you describe as your leadership style? And where do you obtain your inspiration from? Additionally, should your peers, work colleagues, team expect anything different from you as a result of anything that you've learned during this lockdown? Oh goodness, those are big questions, Elaine. <laughs> um, so if I start with, with what I've learned, I guess, over the last few months, it, it's actually been a consistent theme of my leadership style, which is, um, particularly with what, what I do, um, people have got to be absolutely at the heart and centre of everything that you do. Okay. so it's you know we don't have assets we don't sell goods um so our people at pwc are our assets and the importance if i think back three months ago of being empathetic and making sure that those people that, that everybody was okay um you can't put a value on that um, and people really really appreciated the reach out I'm just giving you a quick call to make sure that you're okay mm -hmm. and ordinarily a lot of my clients are international so I spend a lot of time on planes mm -hmm. so I may not necessarily have have thought I think in the past to to give someone a call and say is everything okay I would do if I was, you know, if I was in the office in the UK, but, but actually calling from afar and just saying, is everything okay, was, was so important. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that the other thing that I would sort of take from, 
of you know from, from the last three months is the ability to to think to, to be agile I probably put, probably put sort of a few things together to be agile to think strategically and to kind of be quick off the mark so so I give you a really good example um, the week that we we went into to lockdown we had a client event that, that we were running uh, with heads of taxes of some of the biggest asset managers and ordinarily we have them all in a room we do breakfast it's a couple of hours meeting and the assumption as as other you know as we and others were beginning to you know to close offices the assumption that was kind of made to me internally was oh well i guess we will we will defer this and do it when we're all back in the office mm -hmm. so having the foresight to kind of think we may not be back in the office. In my mind, actually, I thought we would be going back into the office now. But I did initially think we're not going back for three months. Mm. And recognizing that our clients still wanted to hear from us um, and being agile enough to say, OK, well, we used to do the meetings by, um, you know, in person. We will just do them uh, virtually. So it was a real sort of, it was actually a really big thing. It feels like nothing now three, three, three months later because that's, that's the way in which everybody's doing meetings. But to literally day one, it was the 8.30 meeting and to just go, right, we're in lockdown, but we're just going to do this virtually. Mm -hmm. um, and asking our clients to switch their cameras on, mm -hmm. um, that was the sort of the agility, the sort of the foresight, you know, being strategic about it. I kind of take as a as a lesson um, from you know from this period of time. How did they how did they receive this new way of meeting, so to speak? How did they receive that? With huge amounts of trepidation <laughs> at the time. Um, I, I said earlier that I worked um, flexibly at home for for, for a long time. And we've had the technology for the last uh, two or three years to be able to do video calls. Mm -hmm. um, and even though I would set up meetings as, as video calls, both internally and with clients, they would never do it. Nice. So actually asking them to do it, it seems strange now, three, you know, three uh, months on, when everybody is now experienced at doing it. Oh, but, but it was a big thing at the time. Yeah. But they were so glad of the opportunity to connect with each other and to connect with us that we weren't leaving them you know, behind and we weren't saying, oh, well, that's the end of it. We'll see in a few months' time. And we've continued. We used to do those meetings on a quarterly basis and we've actually been doing them on a fortnightly basis because that people angle of it and the communication angle of it, given them the opportunity to connect with each other and with us, has proved to be really important as they dealt with it, as you, as you sort of said earlier, a series of quite challenging, um, you know, a series of quite challenging things. I, I like, I think, when you started on that question, I like the use of the word people, especially, um, I, I used to work in the management sort of business, that people were it was interchanged between people and resources so i kind of yep. like the, the use of the word people when you started to describe 
what's important in, in the organization. So, you know, points there. <laughs> But but I would also say, you know, I gave the example of actually just checking in on, you know, on, on my team. Yeah. But also some of the some some of the the best received phone calls I also had at the time were the calls that I made to my clients around the world, you know, particularly in New York, you know, as New York you know, was really being engulfed in the crisis, mm-hmm. you know, phoning my clients in New York and just saying, is everything okay? Just want to check in on you. Um, and, and clients were really grateful for that. And in that sense, yes, they are clients, but they're people first. Yes, yes, indeed. And um, the letter off of the question was anything, apart from the, the agility that you talked about, but your peers and work colleagues, will they notice anything different once we get back to the sort of, face-to-face in the office setting would there be anything different that they would notice about the way you work um it's that's a good that's a good question I, as i say, i think the people bit is is one that's always been a part of me mm-hmm. um i think that i've been probably because it's such a big thing that's you know that's happened this pandemic over the last few months mm-hmm. the I've been much clearer around the strategic impact of, you know, of what's happened. And so as a leader, I think that's, um, you know, that's really kind of sharpened the pencils, um, you know, as they, as they say, you, you mentioned uh, Jacinda Ahern in your question. And, and it's interesting because the criticism of her is probably the opposite to to what I've had, um, you know, before in my career. In that, um, I, I, you know, I've historically been seen as a very strong, you know, as a very strong leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes there is uh, a perception, particularly when you're a strong character, that you're not necessarily empathetic. Mm. Um, and of course that's not true and it may be that thing that you don't necessarily shout about being empathetic but I've always kind of been the person to kind of quietly get on with it Mm -hmm. and so I completely agree with her that it isn't one or the other it isn't about being strong or empathetic you're both yes you can wear more than one hat you can, you can wear more than one hat. Yes, absolutely. Right. And that leads me quite nicely on to the next question, bearing my hats. I'm going to bring that up again. And um, this is a quote. This is a quote I've, I've obtained from you. Um, you say you are a minority from multiple lenses. You are female, you're black and a mother. On top of this, you openly state that you have both sick cell and thalassemia trait. And as a result, I should say, you've had... Um, to work flexibly for a number of years in order to avoid the reoccurrence of chronic fatigue syndrome with these different lenses or with these different hats and as a PwC partner you bring your personal and lived experiences to help others and you state that you are very um, supportive on a one-to-one basis and on a strategic level such as pointing out unconscious biases you gain inspiration from people who are very different to you and you find that your passion for your work um, those individuals naturally work with you on that level, treating your gender and race as immaterial. Effectively, you say 
they allow you to demonstrate the very best of me. Um, yeah. You're able to progress in the firm. For my audience, who is the me? Um, <laughs> want people to know, who is Teresa that your colleagues see? So you've actually touched on many facets, <laughs> many facets of me. Um, so there, there's been a campaign that, that you may have seen on, on LinkedIn on the asset management industry, and it's been related to Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. and, and it's been asking to state who you are in, in three sentences. So the three sentences that I chose um, in this order were, um, I'm a mum, I'm a wife, and I'm a leader. Mm -hmm. If I'd been able to add two more things, I would have said, I'm a sister and I'm a friend. Mm -hmm. But all of those are part of who I am. So I don't come to I don't come to, to PwC to work and then you know leave the empathetic part of me that is you know a, a mom or a friend or whatever behind. It's all part of um, it, it's all part of what I would call my purposeful leadership. I'm very much governed and guided, I would say, by my sense of integrity, my sense of doing the right thing. Um, you know, both my people, you know, both the people I work with and, and my clients. So that's a big part of, of who I am at my core. Um, I'm also a massive contradiction. So um, I'm a huge Manchester United fan. I love sports. So I love Man U. I'm absolutely passionate about it, about them. Um, I love Formula One sports. Um, I'm the person when the Olympics come around. Um, I don't sleep for the best part of, of three and a half weeks. And then I repeat it again during the Paralympics um, mm. because I'm totally sports, <laughs> sports obsessed. <laughs> Equally, I love the arts. Um, I love going to the theatre. I love the ballet. You know, I've introduced my young kids quite quickly to those things. Mm -hmm. um, so, so sometimes they say, oh, somebody's either arty or they're really sporty. And, and I'm a contradiction of all those things because I love, I'm passionate about all of those things. I, I'm a bit of a melting pot, Elaine. You, you like dipping your toes in everything and trying things I like do. <laughs> I do. And it's quite strange because it means that, uh, it means that if people only see you in a certain context, that, um, or they only see a, set, a certain facet of, of your personality, that they like to kind of put in their mind the whole of who you are is that bit of you that they've seen and so that's probably one of the things that I've learned as the leader is to try and bring the whole of myself into every interaction and so that's why the my LinkedIn bio which you were quoting from yes. um, is quite a personal one and it was a very deliberate decision yeah to make it both about business and about who i am that's why i said in the introduction it, it felt quite personal um yeah as opposed to your skill set which most of us write in our linkedin description i thought this felt quite personal so it was a kind of that's why in the introduction i said you're all about personal mesh with business so i wanted to know more about that that is it that's exactly that's exactly who i who i am in in the work context and you know you can describe your skills but 
but quite honestly you know if you've been doing what I've been doing for for 25 years or you know I'm a partner at PwC your skills are almost by the by but in terms of being a trusted business advisor to people it is about who you are and it is about the relationships that you create with people mm -hmm. so and for me relationships is so incredibly important mm -hmm. that that you know giving a little bit about who i am i think is the first step to when people connect with me on linkedin for as an example that they know a little bit about who i am right okay so that's why as you said it's a it's a deliberate entry into your yes. business profile yeah very so okay. um in my introduction i mentioned that um you've won a award can you tell my audience a bit more about that that was yeah that was uh that was last october um and it was the uh at the black uh british business awards mm -hmm. um and i won the senior professional uh services leader of the year mm -hmm. um which i was uh, genuinely thrilled about it, it was a it was a great <laughs> evening a great great accolade i'm moving on um i i'm not going to give a detailed introduction to this next question, but I want, um, because I want you to talk us through it. Um, yeah. What I will say is that this is a very, very current topic, and you have touched upon it, and we have touched upon it a little bit in the previous answer to the question, and it actually knocked um, COVID-19 off the headlines. Well, COVID-19 knocked Brexit off the headlines, I and mean, something to knock Brexit off the headlines, it has to be big. So something to knock COVID-19 off the headlines, it must be equally big. We're talking about the um, Black Lives Matter movement and how the killing yeah. of an unarmed black man in the US has created this um, global debate and galvanized this movement to have black lives heard and start the often uncomfortable debate around race and racism. And how do we all rid the world, personally and professionally, of this disease? Um, PwC recently had an internal live webcast topic, Colour Brave Discussion, where all the staff were invited and three leading black figures in the organisations were on the panel. You were one of them. Um, leading, yeah. leading from the top, it was hosted by the chairman of PwC, Kevin Ellis. Yeah. Um, talk my audience through the discussion, what you can talk us through, um, how it came about, the content, uh, what was gained from it, what was the outcome? I'd really be interested to know that. Sure. Um, so the killing of, of George Floyd happened um, on the same day as the video was circulating of Amy Cooper, who was the woman in, uh, in New York who called the police um, on, yeah, on a black man who had asked her to obey the Central Park rules. Yes. And, um, and that happened, it was actually half term, so I, I wasn't in the office uh, that week. So when I returned to the office the following week, I was inundated with um, the number of black and, and other ethnic minorities that reached out to me, but particularly the number of black people that reached out to me, um, who were really, really distressed um, by, by the you know what they'd seen and also how it made them feel and people were very very emotional so the week before the first week 
because I hadn't been working, all of the, the discussions were amongst my family, in particular my friends. But, but when I got back into the office, it then became clear that particularly our younger, uh, you know, black people in the firm were feeling very, very emotional. The other thing that they were feeling very, very emotional about was that they didn't feel that um, their white colleagues were reaching out to them to ask them how they were. Mm-hmm. And in my belief, they mistakenly thought that um, that was because they didn't care. And in fact, uh, Kevin Ellis, our, our chairman, had taken the lead on this. So on the day that I returned to the office, he had sent out an email to all 22,000 people mm. um, talking about, you know, how, how um, uh, you know, just how bad this was and, and how um, our black employees must be feeling and encouraging people to reach out um, and, and just, just care. You know, one of our values as a firm is about caring. So just encouraging everybody to reach out and do so. Mm-hmm. So, so after that email was sent, I think uh, a lot of our black people got, you know, pro- probably sort of more distressed because they felt that people weren't reaching out to them. Mm-hmm. And the more that I talked to people, the more that I recognized that actually people weren't reaching out because they didn't care. People were reaching out because um, they were uncomfortable doing so and they didn't know what to say. And they didn't necessarily kind of understand why something that happened 4,000 miles away was, was personally impacting, mm-hmm. um, our, you know, the people in our firm. Mm-hmm. So talking to Kevin about it and to Laura Hinton, our chief people officer, um, their decision was that they wanted to, you know, taking the feedback on board, they wanted to do this live webcast for all 22,000 people in the firm. Mm-hmm. And we had a one hour conversation where there were, it was Kevin and uh, three of us, uh, all black, uh, two partners and a director, and we talked about race. So I, Kevin led off by saying this was the most uncomfortable webcast he'd ever done. He was anticipating it was going to be uncomfortable. But it, it, he made the point that as a white privileged male, he needed to get comfortable with being uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and you couldn't actually address anything without having the conversation and being prepared to move forward. So he asked me to explain why why George Floyd's um, killing resonated with me and, um, and why we were hearing, you know, what we were hearing from other black employees. So I talked to Kevin um, actually about, you know, what it feels like to be a black person in the UK. Um, I gave examples such as, you know, Kevin sees me as a fellow PwC partner and I have his respect there. But, you know, when I go into a nice shop, I will occasionally be followed by a security guard. Mm. So, so, and so I walked through some very personal examples, as did the other panellists. Mm-hmm. And... We, we then kind of went on to talk about what we call microaggressions mm-hmm. and what, what people see on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, being a senior person, a black person, turning up at a client, handing over your business card, and the client not believing that you're the partner. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Because you're not their personification of what a partner from PwC must look like. Yes. Yes. So, so we, we gave, and so what it did was that by being really open and just, just frank about what it's like to be a black PwC partner, um, that what it did was it allowed people to to almost to kind of step into our world and to get a better understanding than maybe anything that they'd read and they'd seen, etc. We then, you know, we then took some live questions from people. And Kevin also used the opportunity because he and the board have been listening to the feedback that that they've been giving to announce some some uh, you know some new measures, including mandatory um, racial and unconscious bias training for the whole firm. Mm-hmm. So the impact of that conversation, that one hour conversation, the whole firm getting together, downing tools, and talking about race. It feels like there has been a significant shift in the firm because we have had, you know, we've been reporting on ethnic pay, you know, on on the ethnicity pay gap for the last three years. We've been one of the firms that actually have been very focused on increasing the representation of, of, of our black and other ethnic minorities, you know, in the senior sort of echelons of the firm. But it's one of those things where I would say that over the last three, four years, it's very much been from the top down. And in order to move forward and to address the sort of the the inequality and the the sort of um, representation, you have to have all 22,000 of us absolutely understand and completely embrace it and feel like it's their initiative too. Mm -hmm. And from the overwhelming responses I've had since that webcast, it, it really feels that it's been a significant shift. Has it has it been um, easier to talk to you about it now because of the the webcast? Has that sort of allowed the door to be open to be yeah, open absolutely talk or yeah absolutely so um, so for me it was less about reaching out to me as a partner but but much more um, actually seeing our chairman saying this is uncomfortable I'm uncomfortable but it's important I think lead you know being that role model it gave people the permission to step out of their comfort zone so I got many 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 messages of people saying thank you for doing this and just giving me a better understanding Mm -hmm. I now feel more comfortable just to reach out and have a conversation and one of the things that we were saying on the you know on the webcast was we don't expect you to have the answers, so you know, just be prepared to have a conversation. Yes, yes, that that is a start, and, and yeah. I think in a, a previous episode where I spoke to the, the global CPO for Accenture, when he talks about getting anything implemented in an organisation, he, he talked about having to have the seriousness, and the seriousness means it needs to be led by at least a C-level individual in that organisation. Yeah. And what you're telling me here is exactly what he said. Kevin Ellis decided to lead from the top, decided to get in his uncomfortable space, let yeah. him know about it and say, look, here I am, the chairman. Now over to you guys. You be as uncomfortable as possible, but let's get something done here. That's what, that's what's coming across here. 
Yeah, and, and an important part of this is that although we were three other, you know, black leaders in the firm doing that webcast with Kevin, it wasn't about this is a problem for the black people to solve. Not at all. It was actually Kevin very much leading from the front, but but us working with him. And exactly as you've described, well, I've made myself, you know, uncomfortable. I understand more, you know, I want to listen, I want to learn, and then I want to act. Um, And so very much that now over to you. And so what we've seen since the webcast over the last week is now people really taking up that baton. Uh, and saying it's not a it's not a big thing to be uncomfortable I actually want to show that I care I think what's good about this which kind of differs to previous incidents where you had this stuff and you get an uproar and then things die down again and everyone gets back to normal what's different with this is that it has to be a joint effort it has to be led so it's quite quite interesting and we'll see what happens going forward um, I'd, I'd like to move to the next question, which is um, um, away from PwC, it is similar to what we've just talked about, but briefly, um, what are BAMES telling you about their journey in the corporate world and how does, if at all, PwC stand out in your opinion? So, so what I consistently hear is the difficulty that, that BAME people find in progressing um, in their careers, um, those first, you know, are those first five years, that first big promotion, is the one that is the hardest um, to find, mm-hmm. and um, and that for them, they they never feel that they have the sponsorship um, to be able to progress. So one of the things that the feedback that that we as the, you know, as, you know, my fellow panelists and I were giving Kevin on that webcast was we were saying in order for us to really progress that uh, people need to be able to have the fair access to the best opportunities and fair access to those relationships where people really sponsor you and make a difference to your career. Um, A lot of uh, black and other ethnic minorities have mentors, but mentors aren't the one who can change your career. It's the sponsors. So, so it's it's one of the things that we've been focused on. But we really hit that point. And so, if I look at you know what I hear from others, it's that lack of sponsorship. It's that lack of access to you know to those sponsors and to the and, and to the best career defining work or opportunity or project. And so in terms of how PwC is standing out, we recognized this um, three or four years ago. And we have, using technology, we can monitor, for example, on our biggest clients, you know, what is the uh, proportion of BAME people working on those accounts mm-hmm. um, and having conversations with people about it. You know, we started monitoring, um, you know, our promotions and our, and our pay by this, you know. Do we have the an- all the answers? No, but I think the difference is that we started that journey, you know, three or four years ago. What, um, you know, George Floyd's sort of senseless killing has done has given it, you know, a fresh boost, a fresh look, and it's really kind of focused on, yes, you can have 
you can have the ideas, but it's got to be something that's embraced by everybody in the organization. And the last thing that I would add that I hear from BAME people is that we suffer um, a series of microaggressions. And there continues to be this perception that racism is somebody um, calling you, particularly if you're black, calling you the N word and burning a flag or whatever. Mm-hmm. For, for all of, you know, ethnic, all we ethnic minorities, the racism that we experience is typically much more subtle microaggressions. So businesses beginning to understand that actually that's how racism works out in this day and age and having more effective ways of dealing with it is, is absolutely key. Yeah, I that you know, people are starting to realise that there are different tiers of racism and know when it's been received. I, I, I just like to say to my audience, um, which you probably know already, but um, both Teresa and I are women of colour, and I think if I just add a little bit of, of um, my experience to it, um, when I first started in the, the, the corporate world, I, to be honest, I had a very charmed existence and working experience in my first job in, in the corporate world, that was with KPMG. Um, but I was very lucky in um, when I started with KPMG, uh, and that pretty much set the bar in terms of how I was treated and received and I was able to grow. So I knew when I moved into another organisation, and it deviated from that. I knew what was wrong and where it was wrong. So I was quite lucky to start off with, but then I started to experience it as I got older. So just for my audience, so that they get a sense of my experience or a very summary sense of my experience in that. Okay, um, my, my last question um, I'd, I'd like to ask you, um, Teresa, is how hopeful are you for the future? Um, are you seeing the changes needed? Are you happy with what's happening going forward? So I'm really glad that um, the the conversations that we're having now in business are the right conversations. I still think that for a lot of organisations that there is the, um, that they're not fully embracing it. So we've seen lots and lots of companies put out statements, but a a lot of what you hear is that those statements are quite bland. And it's actually time to take action. And so those clients or, or clients, those companies who have the foresight to recognize that they need to take action now, that this isn't something that is just going to go away, um, is they're the ones that I think ultimately will win the war for talent. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to them as a business. So I'm hopeful. But um, I think that, you know, I'd I'd say that I'm optimistic and hopeful rather than absolutely believing that there's going to be, you know, permanent change all across the board. It will happen all of a sudden. So you're more sort of, you're cautiously optimistic, I would say. Cautiously optimistic is a good way of putting it, Elaine. So Teresa Uwesuaje, many thanks for your time and insight. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executive decision makers and heads of multinationals.
Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.